Well, as we continue in the book of Joel, we come across something that might seem a bit surprising. We come across the New Testament. Did you catch the end of of Peter's sermon? Or actually, that was the very beginning of Peter's sermon, but the end of our reading out of the book of Acts, uh, Peter quoted an Old Testament passage. It was this passage that we're in today in Joel, and afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Peter says it's happening right in front of you. Peter is talking, of course, about the church. You're seeing this happen in the church. And I think that's also what this passage in Joel is pointing to. Now, we're going to keep our feet in both testaments this morning. We're going to keep our feet in both covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, Israel's covenant and the church's covenant, which is actually, as I was thinking about it this week, the way I'd rather talk about it, not talk about the old covenant, because you know these days, things that are old, often we don't think are very valuable. Uh, we're people who like new stuff, don't we? We like you know, new TVs, or we like a new car, or a new place to live without so much smoke. We like new things. But the old covenant isn't bad. The old covenant, God's not like, whoops, (laughs) that didn't turn out at all the way I expected. No, the old covenant was Israel's covenant, and it was good for Israel. But it's not the covenant that we live under today. Now, we've talked a bit about covenant the last several weeks. Let me catch you up just a bit in case you're thinking, "I, I don't understand this covenant language. Think of covenant as a sort of treaty. A treaty that God makes between himself and between certain people. Not just everyone in the whole entire world, but people who are willing to keep the terms of the treaty. God said to the people of Israel, I will make a covenant, a treaty with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. And there are all sorts of terms to this covenant. God says, I will give you a place to live, the Holy Land. He said, I will bless you. So that everyone will look and see those people are blessed. Who's their God? I want to know. God said, in order to stay within this covenant, the terms of the treaty that you need to keep are you need to keep my law. And if you don't keep my law, you need to make that right. You bring your sacrifices and your offerings to the temple. There's all this stuff built into this treaty to Israel's covenant where God says, I intend to be in this for the long haul and I intend to anticipate all these different things that can happen and I intend to bring it to the right completion at the end. And in the book of Joel, we read that the people of Israel have not been keeping God's covenant. And so the covenant curses are poured out on them. It wasn't just the the good stuff. God didn't just say, if this, then I'll bless you. He also said, if you don't do this, then there will be consequences. Those consequences, they're not random. God's not saying, hey, you know, I like to punish people, so I'm hoping you'll break the covenant so I can punish you. God's saying, the consequences of covenant disobedience are meant to call you back into covenant faithfulness so that I can continue to bless you. Now, if you remember these covenant consequences, the curses that came upon the people of Israel when they failed to keep uh, their side of the deal, were that they went through a terrible plague of locusts. They went through uh, an awful drought. And then they were invaded by a foreign army that ravaged and pillaged its way across the land. 
And God said, understand what's happening. Understand the signs of the times. Not because you need some special spiritual ability to do this, but because I told you this is what would happen. I told you. Folks, we've been talking about these two covenants a bit. And remember I said we don't live under Israel's covenant. And one of the things that that means is that when wars and fires and drought come upon us, we can't directly say, well, that's just God's judgment calling us back to covenant faithfulness. Because those aren't the blessings of our covenant, nor are they the curses. Where in the New Testament does, does God say, hey, you know, Christians, I'm going to give you a land? Did he say that anywhere? No. Where in the New Testament did God say, hey, Christians, if you follow me, I will make you wealthy? Did he say that? No. Jesus said things like, follow me. Where are we supposed to follow Jesus? Where did he go? Well, yeah, we're supposed to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, like Jesus took it all throughout Israel. But where did Jesus go? I'll give you a hint. It's at the end of his life. <laughs> Went to the cross. And anyone who tries to tell us, you know, here's God wants you to be, be happy and healthy and wealthy. They're not following Jesus. They don't know Jesus. Because Jesus said, follow me. And he went straight to the cross. Now, the cross isn't the end of the story. Okay? I'm not cursing you this morning and saying, everybody, get buckled up. Let's go to the cross. There's more to the story. We're going to come back to that. But I just want to remind us all of, of these facts in the beginning. There is nowhere in the New Testament where God says, I just want you to be happy. Could God possibly promise something better than that to his new covenant people? Tell you a little story. Uh, when I took my Hebrew class, I, it was taught by a man who's about 900 years old. And he was really, he was funny. He was a lot of fun. He was short. And he used to, he would kind of joke about himself, like I can't reach to the top of the blackboard. And he would grab a chair and he'd put it, at, I guess we had whiteboards, he'd put it in front of the whiteboard, and then the 900-year-old man would climb on top of the chair, and we'd all be holding our breath, like, don't let this be the day that Dr. Rigsby falls, and you know, we, we see him break his hip or worse. He never did. Thank you, Lord. And he's since gone to be with the Lord, uh, which after a lifetime of faithful service was a joyful thing, even as it left us bereft and missing him. But he used to say something. He, he, he taught us a couple of Hebrew words. He taught us a lot of Hebrew words. But uh, there were a couple in particular. And one of them was Ha-Eretz, which is the land. And he says, the people of Israel, if you say, if you talk about the Eretz, you talk about the Ha-Eretz, the Eretz land. If you talk about the Eretz, they go like this, Eretz. They say it with a little extra verb. And they kind of step towards you. And why? Because God promised them the land. They say, this is ours. God gave it to us. He said the same thing about the people. Am. Am is people in Hebrew. They'd say, we are the am of God. There's nobody like us. Because they understood the nature of their covenant with God. He called us out as a people to be the people, to be his people. 
He called us from, he called Abraham from way far away across the desert all the way over to Palestine, to the Holy Land. He said, this will be your land. And they say, these are our gifts. These are our covenant blessings. They're maybe not even the primary covenant blessings, but they understood what God's promises were to them. And they valued them deeply. And that presents a challenge to you and I this morning as well. Because do we understand what God's promises are to us? And do we value them just as deeply? Do we get a stern look on our face and we say the words with a growl because they're ours? Let's unpack that. Here, uh, coming directly to the text, Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. We read this, And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people, Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I'm going to divide this passage into three distinct parts. And the first part is God's gift of the spirit to his people. And in the story of the gospel, uh, the gospel in the story of the, the prophet Joel, when the people of Israel did repent like their circumstances called them to, when those covenant blessings had been withdrawn and they finally recognized and understood and they said, God, we are sorry from our hearts. We are stopping whatever we are doing to come to you and say we need to make this right. God heard them. And like he always does, he responded with graciousness and kindness, with being slow to anger and abounding in love, and he began to restore them. And the last time we preached here out of the book of Joel, we said this, God reversed the effects of everything that they had experienced, completely. He turned it around. He said, the locusts have eaten all of your food. I will bring you food. The drought has stopped up all the rain. I will give you rain, and you shall not lack your water. And he said, the armies have come in and invaded your land, and they are toast. There's actually this really gross part where he says, the smell of them. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. They go to the place with drought. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its western ranks in the Mediterranean and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. He's saying, you have been humiliated and embarrassed by your enemies, but now everyone will smell that they're dead and you're alive. And you have your land again. God has reversed the curse. Not just saying, I'll stop, but he said, I will restore what you've lost. But he says, I'm not done. After that happens, I will pour out my spirit. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men dream dreams. Young men will see visions. Even servants will receive God's spirit. He says, you've got your material restoration, but now I'm going to give you your spiritual restoration. Now I'm going to give you your spiritual restoration. I won't be far away from you. I won't, you know, restore these material blessings to you. I I won't give them back. I won't restore these benefits of the covenant to you and yet not come myself. I will come to you. We will be friends. We will be father and children. We will be one of the Bible's favorite metaphors for God's people and God himself 
our bride and bridegroom. God says to his people, you will be my bride again, the wife of my youth, whom I love so very deeply, and I treasure, and I get joy out of. And I will be your loving husband who cares for you, who provides for you, who leads you, who loves you. God will spiritually restore his people to all that they have always longed for. Now, do you remember how the the priesthood worked uh, under Israel's covenant? Remember, you had uh, 12 tribes of Israel. Then you had the Levites, and they were the ones who served in the temple and, and whose, uh, who the priests were chosen out of the clan of Levi, out of the family of Aaron. Okay, so you had the Levites. And the other 11 tribes would, would come to Jerusalem to, to worship and to celebrate, and the Levites would do all of the temple service. And then uh, you had the priests. So you had the Levites, and they kind of just like clean up around the temple and you know, carry out the, the normal everyday sorts of jobs. And then you have the priests who actually offer sacrifices. And then you have the high priests who are the ones who actually go before God one day a year into the Holy of Holies in the temple, approach God, and make all of the sins of the people right in every way. So you, you had kind of like this, this hierarchy of holiness, so to speak, this hierarchy of closeness to God under the old covenant, under Israel's covenant. Now, something happens. It's really interesting in, in the book of Numbers. So if you're in your Bibles, you go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book of the Pentateuch. And I want to turn to chapter 11, beginning in verse 29. Moses uh, has been the one who's leading Israel everywhere. You know, they're wandering in the wilderness. They're doing all the stuff that they're doing. And, and uh, Moses is the one commissioned by God to do this. Aaron is helping him out. And then Moses says, this is too big a job for me. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls on all these other people. And this is what happens. Uh, Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. They're all prophesying. They can't do that. That's your job, is what Joshua is saying. But in verse 29, Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That's what Moses wished. All of God's people would be prophets, full of God's Holy Spirit. And what do we see here in the book of Joel? I will pour out my spirit on all my people. And they won't just prophesy. They'll see visions. They won't just, they won't just see visions. They will dream dreams. All of my servants, men and women all profoundly connected to God. That will be a day when God speaks to all of his people and through all of his people because that's what prophets and visions and dreams are for. Not just so that we will hear from God and, and, and tell each other like God said this or God said that, but so that we will go out into all the world and say this is who God is. This is what he wants you to know. This is what he is calling you to. 
Wouldn't the church be more effective if there weren't just like a handful of people that were doing those things, a handful of people with a deep connection to Jesus Christ, but all of God's people in this place were prophets, visionaries, dreamers, because they were filled with God's Holy Spirit. On that day, When this comes true, the second part of the passage here says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. You know where this language is repeated? The vocabulary is repeated in the 10 plagues to Egypt. It's a reference back Back to that, to that defining rescue of God's people. And I want you to think of this in two ways. First of all, it's, it's the dreadful signs of the dreadful day of the Lord. It's the fact that, look, these are the consequences. When we see the fires in the mountains and when we have drought in our land, you know what it's primarily a sign of? It's not primarily a sign of, you know, God's really ticked about who he elected this year. It's not primarily a sign of, you know, the stuff, the filth that's on TV these days. It's not primarily a sign of our cultural decay. It's primarily a sign of the fact that this entire world is groaning under the weight of sin. That death has entered the world through Adam. And that action has been repeated through each and every one of us who have lived since then. It's not because God's saying, I'm just really angry today. It's because God's saying, this is what it looks like to live in a world that is broken by sin. It looks like we can't figure out what's good and what's evil. It looks like fighting societally. It looks like fires in the mountains. It looks like drought in the land. It looks like climate change. It looks like every disaster that's happening in our world because they are all a result of sin. And that's why in this place we don't say, I remember when Katrina hit the uh, New Orleans a number of years ago, Pat Robertson said, this is God's judgment on, a, on America for, and he, he listed whatever sins he listed. I can think of a few he probably said, and he's wrong. It's not that God is mad about this or that thing. It's that God is saying, this is what it looks like to live in a broken world. This is it. Folks, uh, You notice the sermon title, We Are God's Last Days People. It happened again this week. Somebody asked me, Pastor, do you think we're living in the last days? Because we looked and we said, man, things seem so bad. Folks, ever since Jesus died and rose from the dead, we are living in the last days. These are all the last days. As a matter of fact, if we go to Peter's sermon in the book of Acts, where he quotes our very passage here. Did you catch how Peter changed it just a little bit with the help of the Holy Spirit? How does he start it? So Joel chapter 2, verse 28, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Peter, Acts 2, chapter, uh, verse 17, in the last days, God says. We're living in the last days. The last 2,000 years have been the last days. Every day since Jesus died and rose from the dead, these are the end times. That's, as a matter of fact, how I I understand the book of Revelation. It's not how everyone does. I want to be clear about that. Not everyone can be right like me. 
Just kidding. Lots of people are more right than me in a lot of places, but I think this is true about the book of Revelation. I'm confident of this. The book of Revelation is not a roadmap to the end of history. It's a book that was clearly written to churches that were undergoing suffering and persecution to comfort them today or in their day. The book of Revelation is about the cycles that we go through in history. If you read the book of Revelation and you study Roman history, what you'll find is that, huh, a lot of these things sound really familiar. A number of commentators, especially in our tradition, talk about how uh, the beast, the dragon, all of these sorts of things actually seem to correspond pretty strongly to the political and religious power of Rome back in the day. And that would make a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because it's written to first century people. See, we, we like to say we're living in unprecedented days. These COVID days are unprecedented days. We, we've, we've heard that, right? Maybe some of us have said it. I've said it once or twice, and then I slap myself and say, don't do that again. Do you remember the, the Black Death? Remember that? I mean, you weren't there. None of us were. Maybe George, but the rest of us weren't there. <laughs> what was it? Over a third of Europe died. Do you know how long it lasted? Hundreds of years. It wasn't too, and we're, we're through like a year and a half. We're like, I quit. <laughs> I was reading this book, uh, a historical fiction. It was Wolf Hall. I don't know. It's now like a PBS miniseries or some such thing. Uh, but I, I remember uh, Thomas Cromwell is the main character. So we're talking 16th century England. And, uh, and his family dies from the plague. His whole family. He's the only one. And he gets it. And he survives, but he's the only one. He loses his whole family. Not only this, but uh, it kept coming back. Every summer, people would leave the city. Anyone who could would leave the cities and go out to the country. It became a way of life. These times are not unprecedented. They've happened before. They'll happen again. I can pretty much promise it. You ever watch Star Trek? They always get some super bug that the doctor has to figure out how to cure. It's going to happen again. See, these are the last days. Every one of them. Jesus could come back at any moment, any time. That's what makes them the last days. This world is dying. It's fading away, even as it goes about its business. And sometimes we live in days where that's easier to see and sometimes harder to see, but it's always true. It was true on the day our country was founded. It'll be true the last day our country exists, and there will be a last day. There's always a last day. You know, uh, there's a passage that's often, unfortunately, misquoted. And I'm not asking you to call yourself out here this morning if you misquote it. But 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You ever heard that one before? It's not about America, folks. This is Old Covenant language. Did you hear it? We've been talking about it all morning long. If my people, the am, 
who are called by my name. Is America called by God's name? No. Uh, If they will humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Those are Israel's covenant promises, not ours. So let's talk about ours for a minute. Folks, we have a great country. I'm so thankful for it. The fact that we can be here doing this this morning, what a gift, what a blessing. But it's not our hope. Never was. It never could have been. That's why we're all so angry about what's happening in these days. Because it could never bear the weight of our expectations. Only Jesus Christ can. He's it. See, this promise in the book of Joel, it's really for us. God is going to pour out his spirit on all of his people. Who who are God's people? Well, it's, it's God's family. It's the family of promise. The promise was passed through the promised son of of Adam and Eve, Seth, all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. The promise passed through Noah's family. It came to Abraham who left his land and went to the land that God would show him. And then remember God said, I will make you a great nation and I will bless all of the world for you. I'll give you this land. I'll give you these promises. And remember, Abraham said, I don't have any kids. I'm so old. And so he, he said, we better take matters into our own hands because my wife is also so old. And, and you know, something's not happening. So he, he, has, he gets his slave and he has a baby with her, with Sarah's permission. And that was an acceptable way in the ancient world to actually have children when your wife couldn't bear you children. I'm not saying we should resurrect that. I think that's a bad idea. But that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to say, God made these promises. We are childless. Let's get ourselves a kid. And so they had a kid, Ishmael, and God said, that's not the one. That's not the one. Wait. So they waited a little bit longer. They waited until Abraham was 100 years old. I am pretty sure I'm not going to be alive when I'm 100 years old. And if I had any children when I was 100 years old, I would not want to be alive any longer. (laughs) I love my children. I especially love that I'm in my 30s while I have my children. The promise came to Abraham's son at 100 years, Isaac. And then Isaac had two children. You remember this? Jacob and Esau. And Esau was like, I don't care about God's promises. And Jacob says, I love God's promises, although he had some other problems too. And so Jacob tricked Esau into giving him his birthright And that didn't turn out well. Jacob ended up running away because Esau wanted to kill him. And then Jacob ended up in a far land with with his uncle Laban. And he fell in love with one of Laban's daughters. And we're not going to go there about whether that's okay or not. But then there was, you know, Laban said, work for me seven years and I'll give you, Rebecca, the one that you want. Jacob goes, total, that'll be great. I'll do that. And then he gets married and he finds out he accidentally married Leah instead of Rachel or or Rebecca. Rachel, Now I'm getting lost. Help me out here. This is like a first-year seminary question. I can't even get this. But don't worry about it. The names aren't important. We all know what I'm talking about, even if I don't. So 
He finally marries the one that he loves after working for her for 14 years. And he, he comes back and God says, you were always the one I was going to pass the promise to. The book of Romans said, Esau have I hated, but Jacob have I loved. The promise went to Jacob. And through Jacob, a whole nation of people was born. His 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel, although they cheat a bit on Joseph there and make him two half-tribes, which they name after his sons. See, I know stuff. It passed through the tribe of Judah, through David's family. He said, God said to David, I will make you a king forever. Through your family, you will have a descendant. He'll be born and he will be king forever. He will never leave his throne and Israel will be blessed through him. And then one of David's great, 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 grandchildren was born. His name was Jesus. And the promise passed to him. Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, who would crush the head of the serpent. And so he has done, humiliating him by the cross. Satan's finest hour turned into his lowest hour. And Jesus passed the promise to all those who put their faith in him. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Because if you have, you are part of God's family. Romans 8, 15 to 17 says, You do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs of what? Heirs of the promise. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him or with him. Maybe we don't feel like we're receiving God's blessings today, those new covenant blessings, the spirit coming upon us so that God is speaking to us and speaking through us to the rest of the world. Not just the spirit of promise, but also the fact that when God's judgment comes, we will be spared from it. Because God's judgment isn't primarily about droughts and fires and material loss and all of those things, but it's primarily about death. That's God's judgment. And what happens if we follow Jesus Christ to the cross? Where do we follow him next? Come on, you know it. To his resurrection. To his resurrection. See, this means that there is nothing the world can take that God can't return. There is nothing in this world that we cannot endure because we are assured that resurrection lies at the end and vindication lies at the end. I get so angry when people think I'm wrong. Do you ever feel that way? No, I'm not wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> and it's hard. But there is a vindication for that. Not because God's primary interest is proving me right all the time but because God will always prove his son, Jesus Christ, to be right, to be true, to be the promised one. And if I build all my hope on him, then I can never, ever be disappointed. 
One last word. What should we make of it when we suffer then? When we're evacuated from our homes? When it feels like all that we built is being torn down? When our health fails? When it, we feel defeated? What should we make of it? We should make of it the fact that we are equipped to live like Jesus Christ, not free from suffering, but strong to persevere. Acts chapter 5, verse 40. The apostles have been preaching about Jesus Christ, and the religious authorities said, you're wrong and you're bad and you better stop it or we're going to get you. And when they kept on doing it, they brought him in before the elders When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Does that feel like a failure? Does that feel like defeat? If that happened to you, would you feel like a failure? Would you feel defeated? I tried, God. I went out. I told people all about you, and they they made me stop. They made me stop. That's not what the disciples saw. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then the disciples, the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Let's be clear on what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, pain feels good. They beat me, but for some reason I feel great. It says, now we're more like Jesus than we were before. We know we're really following him because we're getting the response that he got. What if we lived our lives that way? And the, the second thing here, and the last thing. See, if we are, if God's spiritually restoring us, if that's if that's the real covenant that God has made with his his New Testament people, his Jesus Christ people then we are the ones that God speaks through, testifying to Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 18. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. You know one of the things that that means? If we're looking for God to speak through us and we're not making it up on our own, here's, here's part of what it means. We are neither in charge nor the ones responsible for the result. Get that? If God says, I will give you the words to speak when you get dragged in front of people for the sake of Jesus Christ, he's saying, I will tell them what I want them to hear. And that means that the goal is mine. I'm speaking for God here. God knows the outcome that he wants. And we can trust him with that. Because again, if we follow Jesus to the cross, to his death, where do we follow him to next? The resurrection. He's not going to leave us hanging. We are God's last days people. 
We are empowered by his Holy Spirit to speak God's message to each other and to the entire world. We are protected not from all of the hurts that come in this life, but protected by the promise that no hurt shall ever overcome us fully and that one day we shall be delivered and vindicated by our resurrection. And all of this, God spoke to his people hundreds of years before Jesus took his first breath, like you and I, as a baby in that shelter, in that manger. The God who can do that can take us everywhere we need to go.